0: I have a a practice of having uh, a daily quiet time, and I try to get up every morning. Well, I get up every morning, preferably before anybody else rises so that I have time to be alone with God, and I read some scripture, and I I meditate on the scripture, and I pray. So about five years ago, uh, I had gone through what I normally do in quiet time. I'll pick a book and I'll go through the book one chapter at a time. So I'd finished a book, and I think it was Ephesians, which I had gone through just five times. I just just go through it five times, five times, every morning a chapter. So I said, Lord, what should I read now for my quiet time? And immediately he said, the book of Job. And I have to tell you, I honestly said, oh no. I'm serious, I'm serious oh, no, Uh, why can't you have me do something like the Song of Solomon? And I said, God, are you really saying the book of Job? Because I have never liked the book of Job because it's just, ugh. So, God, I'm going to ask you one more time, as though I'm going to change his mind, right? God, I will study whatever you want me to study. He said, the book of Job. So I read the book of Job, one chapter a day, over and over and over and over again, until now I have to say it's one of my favorite books in the Bible. And it's one of my favorite books in the Bible because uh, I didn't realize when I started that the gospel is all through the book of Job. It is a living example of the gospel. So I want to start us out with that. And... The, the key players are, are God. And when it starts out, he's called Elohim. And then there's Job. Uh, and Job, the, the name in Hebrew for Job is uh, somebody who's persecuted. That's what it means, persecuted. And uh, he was described as the greatest man on earth at the time. Uh, in short, he was one of the best men uh, of his day one of the best men of his day. And then there's Satan. And contrary to the normal thought that Satan means deceiver, that's not what Satan means. Satan in the Hebrew or in the Greek means adversary or prosecutor. Adversary or prosecutor. So I wanna start off, and as you see in your bulletin, I'm gonna talk about Satan's charge against God, the friend's charge against Job and God, Job's charge against God, God's response to Job, and Job's repentance, and then I'm gonna end with the comparison of Job and Jesus. So right now, uh, Satan's charge against Job, uh, I'm sorry, Satan's charge against God and the universal problem of sin and evil. So Job one starts off and it says in chapter, Chapter 1, verse 9, Satan answered the Lord and said, does not Job, to set it up, the sons of God, meaning the fallen angels, have come before God at his command. He summoned them, and they're making their appearance. And God says, have you considered my, my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. And so here's um, Satan's response. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. So basically, a series of tragedies came into Job's life, one after the other. All his possessions were taken away, his servants were killed, and all his children uh, died in a whirlwind natural calamity in what in ooze where he lived and finally he was afflicted with boils painful boils all over his body that oozed pus and he would take pot, pieces of clay pots to scrape off uh, the ooze and to kind of relieve some of the itching and pain that came with the boils and so what um, Satan is saying to God is that you are not worthy in yourself to be praised. You are only like the big daddy. And as long as you are emptying, pulling money out of your purse, then uh, Job will praise you and love you. But you take away that good stuff and you're not going to have any um, any love from Job at all. He will dismiss you, he will turn his back on you. And so that was Satan's charge against Job, I mean against God right there, that God you are not worthy to be praised. Well, Job has three friends who come allegedly to comfort him, and they start out uh, the right way, but then they Um, start to charge, makes charges against Job and against God. And so the older of the three friends speaks first and and basically uh, says, remember who that was innocent ever perished or where were the upright cut off As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God, they perish, and by the blast of his anger, they are consumed. And then elsewhere he says, is not your evil abundant? There is no end to your iniquities, for you have exacted pledges of your brothers for nothing and stripped the naked of their clothing. You have given no water to the weary to drink and you have withheld bread from the hungry. And then Zophar, one of the other friends says, the exalting of the wicked is short and the joy of the godless, but for a moment, though his height mount up to the heavens and his head reach to the clouds, The wicked will perish forever like his own dung. Those who have seen him will say, where is he? For he has crushed and abandoned the poor. He has seized the house that he did not build. So I'm jumping through a lot of verses to say this. Job's friends go from insinuating that God is punishing him for some unseen and unconfessed sin. And in their dialogue with Job, they progress from insinuations to outright attacks like what I just read. You have robbed the widows. You have beaten the poor. You have done all these things. That is why God, so they're saying two things. God is punishing you. You deserve God's punishment because you are evil. They have concluded that from his circumstances. The problem is they have absolutely no evidence of wrongdoing. All they have is the fact that this one man is suffering And they conclude that his suffering is evidence of his sin. Uh, And provoked by circumstance and friends, Job begins to believe that God is punishing him. Now, let me tell you the danger of the friend's thinking. And it is a thought that pervades the world today. You earn your salvation. You, Job, are being punished because unlike us, you have not earned God's favor. What is the proof? We are not suffering, and you are. Therefore, it is evidence from your suffering that you have sinned against the Most High God and that we have not. So they have put God in this box that says, only good things happen to bad pe- good people, and only bad things happen to bad people. That is exactly the opposite of the gospel because in the gospel we know that God died for every person and that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But when you get into this paradigm that suffering is the evidence of God's disfavor because of your sin, then whenever you see someone else suffering, you naturally jump to the conclusion that they're a very bad person. And equally, you pat yourself on the back because you just got a pay raise, and bought a new car. God is blessing me. Why? Because I'm a good man. Rather than saying, God is blessing me notwithstanding my sin because he is a God of grace and love and mercy. So when you go back and read the book of Job, read it through the lens of understanding that they are attacking the gospel of grace and replacing it with the institution of works. So the charge against God is that he is obligated to bless me because I'm good, the charge against, that's from the friends, the charge of Satan against God is that you're not worthy to be praised in and of yourself, but only for the good things you do. Job is provoked by circumstance, by his friends who cause him to begin to say, God is punishing me, and I don't understand why. And therefore, he is punishing me without cause. On the last one, Job is right. Because God said to Satan, he, this is my servant Job. There is no one like him in the earth. He is blameless before me. So we know from God's own mouth that God did not permit Satan to attack Job because of some defect in Job's character, some sin that had to be repented of. So the friends just provoked Job, and he said, and their charges against him, you've done all these evil things, and he said, what's the evidence of it? What have I done? And their statement that God punishes the wicked and uh, only punishes the wicked and always enriches um, the righteous, you and I know by life that that's not true. David said in Psalm 71, as I look around, I see the wicked prospering every day and and the righteous are being persecuted. But then David said, ah, but then I went into the temple and I remembered their end. See, the law of... Uh, cause and effect of righteous punishment operates, It's you know, whatsoever a man sows, that will he, will he reap. That operates very imperfectly in the natural realm before we stand before God. Really evil people make a lot of money and they are famous. And really righteous people, they might be homeless. But in the eternal, the reap what you sow is perfectly executed, but here it is not. And that's why the wicked can prosper and why the the righteous can suffer. Okay, so Job was arguing with his friends. you would know from your own experience that that's not true. And what evidence do you have that I've sinned? And their response is to fabricate more from their imaginations about all his wrongdoing. And then to make things worse, God is silent. He says nothing. And Job says in chapter 16, surely now God has worn me out. He has made desolate all my company and he has shriveled me up, which is a witness against me and my leanness has risen up against me. It testifies to my face. He has torn me in his wrath and hated me. He has gnashed his teeth at me. My adversary sharpens his eyes against me. You know, the Bible says that we are supposed to provoke one another to righteousness. And Job's friends have done just the opposite. They've provoked him to Accusations against God. Job is a man on trial. God is the judge. Satan is the prosecutor. And Job's so-called friends are the witnesses. They are the ones who are claiming all the bad stuff that Job has done. The one thing Job does not have in this trial is a defense attorney. There's no one there to argue on behalf of Job. And this is Job's lament in chapter 9, beginning at verse 30. If I wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, yet you will plunge me into a pit, and my own clothes will abhor me. What he's saying is, if I do the most vigorous, rigorous, dangerous cleansing. It won't do me any good. You, oh God, will just throw me into the pit anyway. And then he says, for he is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. So God's, Job's charge against God is that you have put me on trial with these witnesses testifying against me and I have no one to argue on my behalf. I can't even lift my head to plead my case to you and no one comes forward in my defense. So God, there's this whirlwind And God answers Job with a series of stinging rhetorical questions. It it goes on for chapters. Don't worry, I'm not going to read all the questions. But I do want to read a few of them. And this is at chapter 38, beginning at verse 4. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb when I made clouds its garment? and thick darkness its swaddling clothes and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far you shall come and no further. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. And he just goes through a series of questions about the natural environment. And one of them I just, how do you explain how the mountain goat gives birth on a crag of space. How do you tell the lion where to get food or the prey where to hide? This interrogation is designed to show the uniqueness, vastness, and complexity of the universe and that God not only created it, but continues to govern and order it all. If Job cannot understand one infinitesimal part of God's creation, like how a mountain goat gives birth on the sheer side of a mountain, or how the wild donkey survives in the arid uh, plain, or how the ostrich drops its egg on the ground and then leaves it to warm in the sun, if you can't explain these things, how can you charge me, Job? And so God is in complete control of the most minute detail of his creation. Can Job replace God and do God's work for even one day? Years ago, uh, Dana had me washing dishes on a Saturday. (laughs) She's very strict. And she says, I cannot go out and play till the dishes get done. So I'm washing the dishes and I'm listening to KPBR and they're interviewing the world's foremost scientist. Listen to this. On the, the fruit fly. The man's only area of study with regard to the fruit fly was its eyes. He had spent 20 years studying the eye of a fruit fly. And still, all he could say was, our theory is what we believe is, but we cannot confirm. It. This is the eye of a fruit fly. And we are going to challenge God. So God continues to answer Job's complaint and demands with questions that reveal God's sovereignty, his power, his wisdom, and his control. God indirectly answers the why question in chapters 40 to 41 by telling Job, trust me, I've got this. And when you go back and read those chapters, you'll see that God, what God is saying is, you don't understand all these things? How do you think you can understand my plan for your life? But Job, I've got this. And then he asks another question about behemoth. This is a powerful land creature that Job has obviously seen and knows something about. And this behemoth, God controls like it was a little puppy dog. But then, in chapter 41, God moves from the natural, physical realm to the spiritual, cosmological realm. Let me read from Job 41, verses 1 through 3, and then 33 to 34. This creature is called Leviathan. It's a powerful, fantastical sea creature. And Job's, I mean, God asked Job, can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make pleas to you? On earth, there is not his like, a creature without fear. He sees everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. Now, in the Bible, when you talk about seas, seas often represent sin. And the word Leviathan is only used six times in the Bible, the Hebrew word that's translated Leviathan, and it means dragon. All right? So... This is a dragon, and the dragon is Satan. 41 verses 18 to 21. His sneezings flash forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the dawn. Out of his mouth go flaming torches. Sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils come forth smoke as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals, and a flame comes forth from his mouth. All you have to do is take a look at Revelation 12, verse 9, and you'll see a similar description of Satan. In chapter, in chapter 41, the same passage in Job, verse 22, it says, in his neck abides strength. That is Satan's pride. You know, we say you know, bend the neck. Well, Satan doesn't want to bend the neck to God. So in Ezekiel 28, verse 2, speaking of God, uh, Satan, Ezekiel says, because your heart is proud and you have said, I am God. I sit in the seat of the gods, in the heart of the seas. Satan was a magnificent creation before the fall. And continuing in Ezekiel 28, it says, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden The garden of God, every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz, I want to mention all the emeralds. And crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were treated, created, they were prepared. Now in Revelation 13 at verse 1 through 4, it says, and I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads with 10 crowns on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and his great authority. And they worshiped the dragon for he had given his authority to the beast. What Job, what God is saying to Job is Job, This is not about you. I have a plan for dealing with your sin and all sin. I have a plan for dealing with all evil. God will destroy the dragon and will provide salvation for all who believe. And Job's response in chapter 42 is this. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see thee and therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So what were these things too wonderful for me? God reveals this age-old battle with Satan, evil, and sin. God and Satan are fighting over us. God for our salvation, Satan for our destruction. God tells Job that God himself is Job's champion, that God himself will take care of Job. So let's go back to Job's lament. He said, there is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. And the word arbiter in the English is lawyer, lawyer. Job comes to understand that the living God himself has provided an arbiter for him, that the living God will destroy Leviathan, the great prosecutor. Jesus is that arbiter. He is the arbiter between us. He is the answer to Job's prayer that there be an arbiter who might lay his hand on us both. 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. Galatians 3, verse 19. Why then is the law, Paul asked? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. That offspring is Jesus. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. So, what, what Job is saying is that Jesus Christ stands before God on behalf of all people. He argues our case for us. And when Satan says Bill McCurron is a liar, he's hypocritical, he doesn't live up to what he professes, there is no defense to this charge. I cannot say false. Jesus comes up before the Father and says, That's true. But I've paid for his sins. Every single one of them. And so he is, I want you, Father. He, I want, call him brother. I want you to adopt him as your own son. And then Jesus turns right around and he says to mankind, the Father loves you. He doesn't want to punish you. He doesn't want to separate you. He doesn't want you to suffer. He wants you to come into his love and experience it every day of your life. So when it says a mediator implies two people. So God, as Jesus, goes to man to introduce us to the Father, and then he goes to the Father to introduce man to him as a sinner who needs to repent and put on me their sin. That's what the book of Job is about. The arbiter that Job prayed for, he didn't understand, and God didn't come out and say, I'm going to show you my plan for salvation that will reach all the way back to Adam and Eve and all the way forward to the end of time. But he did say, with these examples, I want you to understand, Job, I've got this. So God restored and multiplied Job's fortune. Job's restoration is a living demonstration of Matthew six twelve, and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Because God said, "God said, pray for your friends. And once Job prayed for his friends, the friends who falsely accused him, they were the same false witnesses before God who were the false witnesses before the Sanhedrin and before Pilate when Jesus was on trial. In Job 1, it says that, Job had seven sons and three daughters. He had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys. But after he prayed for his friends in obedience to God, God restored his fortunes, and listen what it said. Job 42, beginning at verse 10. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before, and the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginnings. So he doubled everything, and he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys, and he had seven sons and three daughters. He doubled everything but Job's children. He did not double the children because they were not dead. There was no need to double them. They were hidden with Christ in God. So um, in Isaiah 25, it says, God will swallow up death forever. And the the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. So I want to end with showing you the comparisons of Job and Jesus because Job is a type of Jesus. Job was only a man. Jesus was very God and very man. Job had God's favor. Jesus had God's favor. Job was a blameless and upright man. Jesus was blameless and a sinless man. Job suffered, although blameless. Jesus suffered, although sinless. Job was not punished for any sin, but Jesus was punished for our sin. Job underwent a trial with false witnesses, Jesus underwent a trial with false witnesses. Job underwent one trial. Jesus underwent five kangaroo trials before Caiaphas and Ananias, before the Sanhedrin, before uh, Potiphar, before Herod, and then back in front of Potiphar again. Uh, Not Potiphar. um, Pilate, thank you. Potiphar takes us all the way back to uh, Genesis. <laughs> Didn't mean to go back that far. Job's friends condemned him, though he was righteous. Jesus' friend abandoned him, though he was sinless. The Job's community mocked and vilified him. Jesus' community, Israel, mocked and vilified him. They said, if he's the son of God, let him come down from the cross. He saved others, but himself he cannot save. The community represented by his three friends condemned Job as cursed by God. The community as represented by Israel condemned Jesus as cursed by God. Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Job suffered Involuntarily, Jesus voluntarily submitted to the cross. Job endured a virtual cross. Jesus endured a literal cross. Job suffered without understanding why. Jesus suffered fully understanding why. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Job did not die. Jesus died. Job prayed for his friends. Jesus prayed for his friends and his enemies. He said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Job was raised from the dust in glory. Jesus rose from the grave in power and glory, being restored to glory at the right hand of the Father. Job's fortune was restored and doubled for himself alone. Jesus restored what the first Adam lost and increased it exponentially for all who believe Romans 6, for if we have been united with him in death, like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. I'm reading from Colossians chapter 1. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is is before all things, and in him all things are held together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus is the arbiter Job realized he needed. God did not give him the specifics of the plan like you and I have. But Job understood that God had his back. So for anybody here today who is going through some kind of suffering in, in the pandemic that we've experienced, most of us in some way or another are going through pandemic, whether it's the loss of a job or financial pressures or health challenges, whatever it is. Um, for those who are burdened, whatever the burden will be, your, your children are not behaving the way you want, your, your marriage is a bit Rocky, uh, your boss at the job is really beating, beating up on you. Uh, or maybe you just found out that there was a terrible diagnosis. Maybe you look at your life and say, I'm blank years old and I don't have a retirement plan yet. Or maybe you're young and, you know, you want a job and you look at this housing market and you say, I'm never going to be able to own a house in here. And for those of you for whom life is good, and maybe there's a little bit of worry that something's going to come along and yank it away. I mean, it's just too good. God says to every single person, I've got this. My plan is perfect, and you are not at the fringes of my plan. My plan is focused On you. Nobody else may know you. You may be insignificant to everybody else in the world, but to me, I love you. And my son and I have sacrificed so that you would know that in every circumstance I am with you. God is good. Let's pray. Father, we... Thank you for the gift of the book of Job. We thank you for the wonderful knowledge that you are absolutely in control. And though heathens rage and governments are in tumult and there's violence and wickedness everywhere, including in our own hearts, we know that in Jesus you have provided our salvation and we purpose to cling to his robe because he is faithful. Amen.